I decided earlier in the week to try to do a talk on time. So I spent a lot of time thinking about it. <laughs> and then as the day went on today, I started to run out of time, even though it's such a timely topic. I didn't have much time to work on it. And now I just have a certain amount of time to give the talk, so I'll launch into it. You can see that time is a a big part of our dream life, our mental life and our our life of action. And uh, and it's it's something that uh, it's not easily defined but yet we somehow know what we're talking about when we, when we say it. When I say time, some would just say it's change. Uh, it's really hard to put your finger on it. It's hard to bottle time. But I thought I'd try to talk about it anyway, the best laid plans. And hopefully you could see how it relates maybe to your practice. My original inspiration was to... Uh, to point out, because it's something that I think about a lot, uh, remind myself a lot, uh, the way that time in our mind can be such a tyrant, can burden us, uh, and how we relate to time, how we relate to this movement of mind, uh, ideas of past and future, and even of present, however I relate to that, Uh, can determine how I live with myself moment to moment and how my experience unfolds. Um, Whether I'm either burdened by time or tyrannized by time or whether time is just something that I use uh, according to its its function in my life. So as you can experience very easily when you sit on your cushion here, when you're thinking during the day, any kind of thought of hoping, expecting, worrying, planning, remembering, anticipating, any of these flavors, any of these particular tunes have inherent in them the the view of time. They usually have inherent in them the view of a a future, of course, that hasn't happened yet, or a past that's already happened. So this is, so we have a lot of these. And you could say that almost any movement of your mind, every movement of your heart, in some ways, almost hidden inside of it is a search, is a search, is a search to somehow assure that the future ends up being a place of greater happiness and ease. Now, if I think just in terms of my life in general, it seems that the hidden aim in everything that I do whether it's uh, the work I do, or whether it's the creative projects that I engage in, uh, whether it's uh, whether it's 
searching out whatever I might search out, a relationship or um, any sort of thing. I mean, we, there's a lot of mythology about those things that if I follow them, if I search for them, they will bring me happiness. And there is the sense that, okay, once I have that thing, and I think the, um, the two that I think of so, um, that are so powerfully, powerful influences in our minds and our lives is the, uh, the notion that if I find a relationship... And the search for relationship, if I find a relationship, somehow that will bring about happiness. And then I can finally ah, rest, relax. And, you know, the truth is, I, people at least that I've worked with over the years and at times for myself, they'd much rather have a relationship than be free. Isn't it true? Well, maybe not you. <laughs> but then other, other things like, like money and power and name and fame and all sorts of things seem like areas where we, the hidden aim is that if I had those things, then I could relax. And in a sense, when we follow those, and each of us has a list you probably have a list that's gotten transferred from your daily life onto the retreat. Now, what is it on the retreat? The mind that's quiet, ah. Or when my body starts hurting, stops hurting, I should say. When my heart opens. And so there's a tendency to aim, to kind of topple forward, to kind of be hypnotized by the the notion that there's going to be some experience, some place, some thing that I do, that will give me that sense of relief. And I'm during that time that I'm leaning a little bit, I'm hypnotized by time. Because there is a belief in that moment that the best is yet to come. That the real secret to my sense of relief, freedom, happiness, is when I get that thing. And that hasn't happened yet. And so you may, want, you may not be surprised that we spend a lot of the time slightly anxious, slightly with a slight anxiety. Because when I live in my view that, that the happiness is yet to come or is it some future date, I start to live in, I live with a kind of demand an inner demand that the future has to make me happy. And so I burden, this is where the burden of future comes in, I burden my actions, my thoughts, whatever I do, with the, with the demand that whatever I'm doing has to make me happy at some future date. And then there's always the possibility, I think I may have mentioned this last week, what if it doesn't? What if I don't get to that place of relief and ease and where my mind doesn't quiet down or when my body doesn't stop hurting? What if, as, as Jack Nicholson in that movie, As Good As It Gets, when he walks into the therapist's office and he says, folks, what if this is as good as it gets?
just try it for a moment. What if this is as good as it gets? Just for a moment, pierce the veil of becoming, of that slight waiting for the fruit of practice. Let your attention simply rest with things as they are. Don't wait for a moment. We do these and do this in general ways in our lives, this kind of waiting, hoping, toppling forward. You've heard it, it's it's really central to the Dharma, this living in our plans of the future or regrets of the past. This is an anonymous quote from someone. He said, first I was dying to finish high school and start college. You can feel that. Then I was dying to finish college and start working. And then I was dying to marry and have children. And then I was dying for my children to grow old enough so I could go return to work. And then I was dying to retire. And now I'm dying. And suddenly I realize I forgot to live. We don't realize sometimes how much of the time we're spending waiting for the end of the sitting, for that point when we're going to be happy, not realizing we're being hypnotized or we've allowed ourselves to be hypnotized. Basically, we've been sold a bill of goods that it really, the future is where it's at. The best is yet to come. Do you believe that there's no place like the present? I think it's dawning a little bit as you sit here. I can just feel the room seems to be pregnant with gratitude and appreciation for this moment as it is. This is not the not your, the usual message. Fortunately, the gift of silence starts sending out the siren call of peace here, now. Remember, don't leap out of this moment. Don't be hypnotized by the view that something, some place will be better than this. Even if you're experiencing pain in your heart, grief, sadness, aching in your body. See if when you're not leaning forward and not leaning back, if you meet this experience that you're having even in this moment without the expectation that it, give, can, that it gives you some reward, then what's missing? What's missing? I talked about this on a retreat uh, some many years ago when I first started thinking about time and the tyranny of time and the burdensome trance of, of the future, of thoughts of the future. And somebody wrote me a note I thought that I would share with you. It was about waiting. It says, Howie, what you were saying about waiting got me thinking. This is in the middle of a 20-day retreat. My parents usually spend a fair part of the morning awaiting the arrival of lunch. Often, while eating lunch, they'll discuss what, where to have supper later on. 
All afternoon they wait for supper time. During the meal plans will be made about what, where, when to have for breakfast the next day or if they would prefer to do brunch. They're eating up their lives, literally and figuratively. I'm fed up with this way of living. (laughs) Or not living, I should say. When I eat, I want to do more than fill my mouth and stomach, a hole inside that food can never fill, really feel, fill anyway. I want to nourish myself, body, spirit, and heart, like it is here. And I want to stop waiting, now. I tried it out today, walking in the desert, and it worked wonderfully for maybe an hour. Really totally changed the texture of my walk. Didn't want to come back. I felt almost like I dropped acid on the brink of hallucinating, kind of. Well, maybe I'm just not drinking enough H2O. Well, thanks for bringing up the subject of waiting. It's real important for me, as you can see. So we come by it quite honestly, this belief that the best is yet to come and that our happiness has to come from some search. And it's a delicate process of how to give in to that, that yearning that each of us has for happiness, for peace, for freedom, without, without that trance, without that view that it will happen some other day, some other time, to see the possibility of discovery in this moment. To see that there really is no future. This is where I think it's helpful to back up a little bit and talk about time. You could say that time is just a concept. That time is really, what we call time is just these ideas that arise in the present called future, that somehow we separate out from the, from the present as though there's something distant or different usually throw in front of us if it's future, and then have thoughts of the past also arising in the present, somehow toss those behind us. You know, it's a quirk of our culture, and it's not true of every culture that the past past is behind us and the future is in front of us. And of course, all this happens in our minds. Notice what happens when you stop thinking for a moment, when you're just quiet. What happens to time? Where is it? But anyway, so we usually do this kind of mental gymnastics of throwing out the future over here and then seeing it in our mind, making it really real as though there's a kind of absolute reality there, and then worrying about it or getting excited about it in the past, replaying it, and suffering about that too. That's really the world of time. Not realizing that time and all these thoughts occur, reveal, open themselves unfold in the present moment. And that there really is no past or future. This is a passage from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj. Before I read this, I want to suggest that this is not to abandon plans for the future or memories of the past. It's quite useful and functional to plan and remember. But I think the teachings invite us 
The practice invites us moment to moment, not the idea of it, but the direct sense of it, that peace, that relief, is your nature now, in each instant where you're simply resting with what is. And so if you know that and you gain confidence and get used to it and and luxuriate in your present experience as you're doing by coming back again and again and again and again, by doing that, you can then go about planning, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, but without the, the burden, without the anxiety that it has to make you happy. Without, without the misunderstanding that, it's, that you're thinking about the future. Nisargadatta said, once you understand that the false needs time, means something you imagine. It's not substantial, not really real. Once you understand that the false needs time and what needs time is false, you're nearer the reality, which is timeless, ever in the now. Reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are merely mental. Reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are merely mental. The real, this is just his language, you don't, don't take it absolutely. The real is always with you. You need not wait to be what you are. Only you must not allow your mind to go out of yourself in search. Do you notice any of those going out of yourself in search today? You know, at this point in the retreat, and I want to say that you're, you're really cooking. Yet even in spite of cooking, in the, in the realm of time, we're past the midpoint if you're, if you're on your first retreat, on the first three weeks. We're getting nearer to the end if you're on your, you know, past your fifth week or into your fifth week. There's a tendency to start to go out of yourself in search. Few people today, to be perfectly honest with you, said, I want to go home. You know that feeling? I want to go home. It's natural. It's a feeling comes, has certain thoughts associated with it. Usually, what are the, what are the thoughts? If I go home, somehow I'm going to hop in the bathtub or do whatever I do, and I'm going to be happier. I'm going to call whoever I'm going to call. I'm going to you know, do my... If you live in Marin, I'm going to do my perfect Marin County day. I'm going to get up and have my, you know, read my paper and my cappuccino, and I'm going to have my sex and my tennis and then my hot tub and then whatever it is. I mean, I don't want this to sound so theoretical. This is what our minds do. And we don't realize it because a state of craving, the state of craving is often associated with pleasant images, we don't re- actually realize that it's a state of suffering. It's a state of, it's actually coloring the moment in such a way. And it, again, it's, it's pointing to some future time. It colors the moment and says, it's not happening here. 
and I'm certain that something else would make me happier than I am. So it's at this point in the retreat that it's helpful, I think, to be aware that that starts to, starts to occur and to recommit yourself to seeing the movements of mind into the realm of time, into the future, into the past. You know, the other thing that often happens, you start reviewing your retreat and trying to decide what you got out of it, whether it was a good retreat or a bad retreat. What the, what the main insight was and what you're going to tell everyone back home. Again, this, this movement of mind out of, out of the, the suchness of the present moment into the imagined future or into the imagined past. So Nisargadatta goes on, he says... Uh, says, the real's always with you. You need not wait to be what you are, only you must not allow your mind to go out of yourself in search. So again, we come back again and again. The basic instructions come back, come back. But then the mind is a little tricky. And as, just as the questioner is in this little dialogue, the questioner says, well, must I not be happy? I may not need something, but yet if it can make me happy, maybe, maybe I should grasp it. You think about that today, you know, when you're making that decision to go for the rest or go for tea or whatever it might be. He responds, nothing can make you happier than you are. All search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. The only happiness worth the name is the natural happiness of conscious being, being present. Now, it may have the ring of truth to you, but at the same time, it also, at least when I first heard this, it kind of triggered all, it, it, it reverberated against all those ideas that I, I thought were really things that would make me happier than I am. More retreats, longer sittings, a trip to Asia, whatever it might be, a trip to Europe, all in, in the most conventional ways. This is the way that, at least I noticed for myself, that I got hypnotized by time, hypnotized by some future that would bring, make me happier than I am. This is from Henry Van Dyke. He says, time is too slow for those who wait, too slow for those who fear, too long for those who grieve, too short for those who rejoice. But for those who love, time is eternity. We don't may not realize that the that the the birth of time in our minds, begins with, the first, with the, the first thought of yourself, first thought of I. And, you know, once, once we're inhabiting the thoughts of ourselves, and again, it's important to, at least it's been important for me to know that the thought of myself is not myself. It's a thought. 
But once I inhabit that reality of my thoughts, and you could call it, um, as, as my friend Gil does, this is the true virtual reality. The reality of our ideas and our stories. And I know there's been a lot of talk about uh, our views and um, limiting views James spoke about the other night. But each time we give rise to one of these thoughts, and we do endlessly, but each time we, in a sense, inhabit them and don't simply know that we're thinking, each time that we extend them, the Tibetans call this, call this the chain of delusion. And I call it the chain of time, because as soon as something is born, as soon as we're born in our thoughts, then we become instantaneously that person who was born, who is going through a life, and who will die. And we literally do it thousands of times a day. We're born in our thoughts and our ideas, and then they pass away. Somebody hits the gong. That one ends, and we start a new one. And it's birth, you, could, you don't even have to think in terms of these wide cycles of birth and death. You can see the way there's birth and death in these moments. In these moments, I have in front of me the the uh, Wiley's dictionary definition of birth. Uh, he says it's the it's the leading cause of death. <laughs> so once I so once I'm involved in that. I'm spending a little time, more time tonight uh, talking about this virtual world of, of my thinking. Uh, because we all know when our thinking, and when there's a, some quiescence or quieting of our thoughts, as you may even be able to sense in these you know, moments in between the words, usually in that quiet, suffering ends, time ends, most of our problems end. So our problems tend to be in the domain of our, of our thinking and our reactions and our views and our opinions. And so when we inhabit, when we incarnate in, the, in that virtual realm of our thinking, it's often with that feeling that, with a feeling of some kind of uncertainty or anxiety, because the, the sense of identity it, itself is is somehow tethered to, to thoughts. There tends to be a little bit of insecurity with that. And so the mind has to, has to start its game of, of looking for relief. So it starts you know, doing the plan of what, and going through the list of what I need to do to, to get to that imagined future and get there um, safely and to arrive and have the future give me that sense of happiness. So it's very easy and you may even notice this in your practice, it's very easy to think that there's some kind of time, that it takes time to get to yourself. <laughs> you know, one example that was used by a teacher once, he said, you know, it's, this was in India, he says it takes about six hours by train to get to, to New Delhi. It takes another three or four hours beyond, or six hours beyond that to get to Hardwar and Rishikesh, these places in India. He says, how long does it take to get to yourself? And in the moment, of course, we realize it takes no time. Simply need to settle back into the moment and rest our attention 
just how we are, being as we are. That how many hours does it take to get to, you know, that question. The way it translates to a retreat is how long does it take for my body to open? How long does it take for my mind to quiet? How long does it take to have one of those really calm sittings? How long does it take to, to experience bliss or rapture or the seven factors of enlightenment or any of that? All of those things, of course, are the natural fruits of practice. They unfold naturally out of the practice, but they don't, they don't arise so easily when you're looking for them. It's just like when you're driving to, let's say, if you're stupid enough to drive in India and try to get from Lucknow to New Delhi. It's as though you're driving, you're getting in one of those rickety cars and you know, weaving in and out of traffic with the map in front of your face. What do you do? You have to put the map down and you drive, step by step. And in India, you really have to be on it. There is no, there's no room at all to be dwelling in time to be dwelling in your imagined past, although many people's lives passed before them, (laughs) (laughs) or to be caught in the imagined future. You really have to be present. You have to be present. So I think you get a chance to see on a retreat, uh, almost like nowhere else, how futile it is to try to make things happen, how futile it is to plan your experience. You know, we speak, as all of us have, about the intention for being here and the goal, and we've had all kinds of uh, comments or discussions about that. But even the best laid plans, the plan of giving a talk on time or whatever, thinking that it was somehow... Uh, (laughs) going to be a certain way. It's futile to think that things will turn out a certain way. It's futile to think that happiness will come from doing anything. I'm reminded of this this passage that uh, probably many of you have heard about this this guy. There was an American artist who lived in the mountains of... uh, of the, on the island of Kopangan in Thailand. And he spent years you know, practicing meditation in a cave. You know, he's sitting and he was also a great artist and he produced this body of artwork. And he got this serious, some kind of serious um, illness, dengue fever or something, and he died kind of suddenly. And when they went to the cave and found, his, found him and all his stuff, they found a passage that was either on one of his um, pieces of paper or it was carved on the cave or something. And the passage said, Oh, what a joy. Oh, what a joy to know there's no happiness in this world. <laughs> it's a joy to realize that this is as good as it gets, that this moment is enough. What is, is, and what will be, will be, and that's that.
Rumi put it this way. He said, failure is the key to the kingdom within. Your prayer should be, break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring, and finally I have no will. I feel so happy uh, talking to you about this right this moment and appreciating so much what gift you have given to yourselves and the people who have to live with you in your lives uh, by coming back again and again to the present moment and appreciating the, the um, completeness of present awareness. And because we've overshot this present so much. Millions of years we've been going out of ourselves in search. Millions of years we have wandered, as they say in the teachings, wandered astray in samsara's vicious cycle of becoming, of waiting, of hoping. So we don't have a lot of confidence that if we truly take care of the present, that the future will take care of itself. That as as the great uh, Indian Saint Ramakrishna said about our present awareness, he said, O longing mind, O longing mind, dwell within the depth of your own pure nature. Do not seek your home elsewhere. Do not confine your innate infinity within the mansions of name and form, I mean, ideas and this and that. He goes on, your naked awareness alone, O mind, is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. Your naked awareness alone, O mind is the inexhaustible abundance for which you long so desperately. When we rest in this way, when we, when we aim in a sense this way to, to now, to seeing precisely, clearly what's presenting itself now, We acknowledge, as I think someone mentioned was in a previous talk, we acknowledge that we really don't know what's going to happen next. We let go, in a sense, into the flow of life. But as we do that, as you may have noticed, as Guy alluded to in the talk, the, his talk the other night on the nature of awareness, a kind of faith, a kind of stability, a kind of trust grows that we really can let go into the openness of awareness or into this moment's experience. And that we can rest our attention here, that we don't have to be running for the next moment. So in the, in the most 
basic way, that means the willingness not to know what's next. And to treat that as more an opportunity for discovery, a kind of vividness and excitement, rather than the dread. Part of the tyranny of time is that we tend to borrow from the past and then project on, take our past experiences, even on this retreat, and assume the future is going to be either the same or worse. And I have, or we have, I think I can speak for us, we have just as much opportunity, just as much possibility of being perfectly happy from this moment forward as we do for being, or for continuing to be unhappy. We know that, that much. We have no idea. Someone passed on this article from the New York Times it was about people's attempts and all these studies that were done and people's attempts to forecast what their experience would be at some future date. And people failed dismally at trying to forecast how they would feel. And they, they especially studied these professors who were at a, hundreds of professors who were at a time in their, in their teaching life where they were up for tenure. And the expectation of either them being happy if they got it or unhappy if they didn't get it. And it proved that they were not as happy as they thought to get it, and not as unhappy as they thought they would be if they didn't get it. And in countless cases, we tend to try to predict how we're going to feel in the future. Again, thinking about ourselves in time, and, and usually make uh, erroneous, erroneous um, forecasts about our future emotions. I wanted to back up a little bit to that, that um, that's the way that we hold time in our, in our culture that's, that it's not necessarily the same for other cultures. Like I said, we tend to have the future somewhere in front of us. The ideas of the future, they get planted ahead and we kind of look forward to it or we worry about it and then the past is behind us. In some indigenous cultures, they have it exactly the opposite. The past is in front of you. You can see it. Future's behind you. It's just a little different shift in perception. But it tells me that our view of time is not absolute. It's not just the way it is. It has, every, it has so much to do with how we relate to it. Fortunately, when we live in, in, in time uh, and look to the future or the past for, for solace, relief, happiness, we end up living a lot in, uh, in hope and fear. As I said before, the fear that the future might not make me as happy as I want to be. Hope that it will. And then if if there becomes an inclination that it might not, then we tend to move into its opposite, which is hopelessness. All of it still has its trance-like effect of having us topple forward into the imagined future. There's a, um, an informal club that has been 
around for many years. Uh, started at IMS, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. It's, it's called the Dukkha Club. You're all welcome to be members, but the, the price of admission, the criteria is that you have given up hope. This doesn't mean that you're, you're feeling hopeless. It means moving beyond hope and hopelessness. So that you're not waiting. So you know that you have that joy, that nothing. What, what is it? Oh, what a joy to know there's no happiness in this world. Of course there's happiness. But there's nothing lasting. And there's nothing in this world that... I can have in the future that will make me any happier than I am fundamentally now. Can you just let that sink in for a moment? I, I need to say this for myself. I need to remind myself because my mind tends to topple forward. One of the ways that I've noticed this uh, in my own life, this toppling forward, is uh, like James, I may be the the, the biggest secret on the retreat is I may be a more rabid football fan than he is. <laughs> but I can be going through my, my work week or even sitting on a retreat, and the idea comes into my mind, a football game is coming on the weekend. And it's very easy to, to get hooked into that, to have that football game color my perception, and all of a sudden... I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the weekend, somehow thinking I'll be happier when the weekend comes. And again, not letting myself really rest where I am. And, you know, that's an innocent thing. We all look forward to things. The real way that this revealed itself for me was several years ago, and I think it was 1995, I was lucky enough to to, um, be able to buy a, a house along with my wife in Sausalito, and it, it, was a, it was a mess when I got it. And it had, the walls had water that seeped through the wall. The, the roof was leaking. The, uh, the kitchen hadn't been cleaned in 25 years. It was, a, it was a real mess. I started, as we all do with our, you know, our self-improvement process, I started home improvement. And just as I realized about self-improvement, Home improvement is endless. <laughs> Yet, there was this slight toppling forward, this view, this trance that said, I'm going to be happier when all of this is finished. Again, it's a mild movement of mind. But nevertheless, we do this countless times during the day as we sit here, as we go through our lives. And so it's just something to begin to notice, to begin to burst that bubble and to ask yourself or to, to question, what's happening now? Is there really anything that will make me happier than I am fundamentally now? The Dukkha Club.
Rumi wrote a, a poem about, with some understanding of this tendency to, to look ahead, tendency to imagine that we'll be better by what we do or what we become or how busy we are or something like that. He called this poem, There's Nothing Ahead. He said, lovers think they're looking for each other, but there's only one search. Wandering this world is wandering that, both inside one transparent sky. In here, there's no dogma and no heresy. The miracle of Jesus is himself, not what he said or did about the future. Forget the future. I'd worship someone who could do that. Just try it. On the way, you may want to look back or not, but if you can say there's nothing ahead, there'll be nothing there. Stretch your arms and take hold of the cloth of your clothes with both hands. The cure for pain is in the pain. Good and bad are mixed. If you don't have both, you don't belong with us. When one of us gets lost, is not here, must be inside us. There's no place like that anywhere in the world. We have to be patient with this process because we have been taught to go out of ourselves in search. Forrest Gump put it this way. He said, some people like me are born idiots, but, more, but many more become stupider as they go along. <laughs> Again, as I, I mentioned last week, our flight from pain and our search for pleasure, those movements of mind into time, are really signs that, you know, are really attempts to find relief. And not because we're bad, we're because we're bad people. But this is what we've been taught to do. We have not been pointed, we have not been taught to discover our sense of well-being in the present moment. We've been taught from the time, from you could say time immemorial, to have our sense of well-being dependent on something that hasn't happened yet. So these teachings, this practice, helps us again and again to wake up from this trance. To stop keep quiet. That the cure for pain is in the pain. Whatever you might be feeling right now. Can you even hear these words without regard to what they will mean about your future or your past? Can you feel your physical experience without regard for what it means about the future or the past? Can you feel the moods that you have, the fear, the grief, without regard for the future or the past? 
Nisargadatta says, when we're this simple, he says, when your mind is momentarily free of its preoccupations with past and future, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb this quiet and stay in it, you find that it's permeated with a light and a love that you have never known, yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. Once you've passed through this experience, you'll never be the same person again. The unruly mind may break its peace and obliterate its vision, but it's bound to return, provided the effort is sustained until the day when all bonds are broken, delusions and attachments end, and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. So how many of us can actually say we are enough as we are, that this moment is enough? How many of us can say, like Walt Whitman, I'm grateful for what I am and have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh when I think of my vague, indefinite riches. No run on my bank can drain it. For my wealth is not possession, but enjoyment of being. So time is entering into this talk, and I want to start to wind down. And just a few reminders. That the way to deal with the movements of our mind is simply to notice them. While you're enraptured or entranced in a a vision of the future or the past, there's nothing you can do about it. But when you awaken, when you realize that you've been absorbed in a trance, to appreciate that dawning of awareness. Tibetans say these are our most successful moments, not a moment to judge yourself about having been absorbed in dreams of the future or the past. To appreciate that reawakening, that dawning of awareness, relax. And secondly, just to continue to put drops moment to moment in the bucket of mindfulness, present awareness, over and over. This is really at the heart of the the natural transformation that takes place. And there will be a transformation that takes place. But it is fulfilled by how you take care of each moment. One of the ways that I like to think of practice, because we tend to think of it in terms of a path, and the path, even though it's a, it's a very inspiring and energizing concept, the concept of a path, that we're all walking this path toward peace, 
it's very easy, again, to create this image of a path that starts in the present and goes to some distant future. And what I found very helpful to, to think of as the path as the beginning of the path is being present. The path itself is being present. And the end of the path, the fruit of the path, is being present. T.S. Eliot, and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. I want to close with two poems. Well, actually, before I do that, I want to give you the pith instructions of the great uh, Patro Rinpoche. Don't prolong the past, he says. Don't invite the future. Don't alter your innate wakefulness. Don't fear appearances. Apart from that, there's not a damn thing. Actually, I think I'll just stick with this one poem. It's called Golden Retrievals. Fetch balls and sticks capture my attention seconds at a time. Catch? I don't think so. Bunny, tumbling leaf, A squirrel who's, oh joy, actually scared. Sniff the wind, then I'm off again. Muck, pond, ditch, residue of any thrillingly dead thing. And you, either you're sunk in the past, half our walk, thinking of what you can never bring back, or else you're off in some fog concerning tomorrow. Is that what you call it? My work to unsnare time's warp, and woof, retrieving my haze-headed friend, you, this shining bark, a Zen master's bronzy gong, calls you here, now, entirely, now, bow-wow, bow-wow, bow-wow. So let's sit for a few moments. 